Hello you guys, it's Katie, and welcome back to another episode of Crime and Crochet. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing the case of Lyle and Eric Menendez, who were two brothers that murdered their parents. Crazy case, so let's just get straight into it. Lyle and Eric Menendez were born to their parents, Joseph and Kitty Menendez, and on January 10th of 1968 was when Joseph Lyle Menendez, the oldest son, was born, and then on November 27th of 1970 was when Eric Glenn Menendez was born. So before I get into too many details about the kids, I'm going to actually talk about their parents. So Joseph Menendez was born on May 6th of 1944 in Havana, Cuba. And at the age of 16, shortly after the start of the Cuban Revolution, he moved to the United States where he attended the Southern Illinois University. And that's where he first met Mary Louise Anderson, who was also known as Kitty. Mary Louise, or Kitty, as I'm going to be calling her for the rest of this episode, was born on October 14th of 1941 in Oaklawn, Illinois. Kitty and Jose married in 1983 and moved to New York, where Jose earned an accounting degree from Queens College, and Kitty was actually a school teacher up until their first son was born. Their first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez, who actually goes by his middle name, so throughout this episode, we'll be referring to him as Lyle, but he was born on January 10th of 1968. So after their first son, Lyle, was born, that's when Kitty quit her teaching job to be a stay-at-home mom, and the family also moved to New Jersey, and that's where Eric was born on November 27th of 1970, so four years later. And during the time the family was in New Jersey, the family lived in Hopewell Township, and both of the brothers attended Princeton Day School, which is a private school, so they honestly seemed like the preppy type. Even in 1986, Jose's career as a corporate executive took the family to Beverly Hills and that's where they lived. Eric began attending high school at Beverly Hills High where he earned average grades and displayed a remarkable talent for tennis actually ranking number 44 in the U.S. for under 18 players in tennis. So that's actually really cool and um, I'm sure he could have had a career in tennis if um, this case obviously did not happen. Before we get into the rest of this episode, I did just want to give a little trigger warning right here because there are going to be discussions of abuse as well as sexual abuse in the rest of this episode. So if that is something that is going to be sensitive for you, probably best to click off now. But um, here's just your little warning before I get into actually discussing this part. Allegedly, according to the two brothers, they did endure a lot of abuse as well as sexual abuse 
in their childhood, and that was kind of their main defense in this case. So I know we haven't actually talked about the case yet, but since we were discussing their childhood and their life before their crimes, I wanted to bring this up, and um, it's obviously alleged because their parents are dead, so they can't go to trial or have anything like that. Um, but according to the brothers, that was a big motivation for these crimes. And not even motivation, that's not the right word. Basically, that was just the defense that they used in this case, and I will explain that more after I discuss the crimes. But just the basis to know is that they did allegedly deal with sexual assault from their father, who actually they called a pedophile and, um... He was also a perfectionist, and from other sources I've seen, would basically just make them keep practicing, keep practicing, keep practicing tennis until it was basically dark, or even later, and basically did not let them have like a social life or anything like that because they were supposed to be the best at tennis. They had to keep practicing until they were the best. That's kind of how their father made them feel at least according to them and then he allegedly also sexually assaulted them a lot throughout their childhood plus their mother was described to be enabling this behavior from their father and also described to be mentally unstable alcoholic and drug addict who again encouraged her husband's behavior and was also sometimes violent towards her sons. So, ultimately, not a good household environment if all of this is true, and um, it seems like it's true because one of their cousins did come forward one time and say that she actually told Kitty about Jose's molestation of Lyle, their oldest son, and Kitty just altogether completely said that this was false and this was not happening, completely denied it. So there are other people other than just the brothers saying that this was a thing throughout their childhood. So I don't really know and there is really no way to know, obviously, but um, that is all just things that I wanted to note before we got into the actual day of the crime and talking about that. On the evening of August 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty were sleeping on a couch in the den of their Beverly Hills mansion when Lyle and Eric, their two sons, entered the den carrying shotguns. Jose, the father, was shot in the back of the head with one of the shotguns and Kitty was awoken by the shots and rose from the couch when she did. She was shot in the leg and fell and then shot several times in the arm, chest, and face, which left her unrecognizable. Now, the brothers later returned home that night, and Lyle, the oldest son, actually called the cops and shouted, Someone killed my parents. When the police arrived, the brothers told them that the murder had occurred while they were out at the movies and also attending an annual Taste of L.A. festival. So, obviously, I'm sure the police in this situation did not even think about the sons being the possible murderers. So, 
they didn't even test them for any type of gunshot residue on their hands or um, find out whether they had recently used a firearm, obviously by testing the gunshot residue, since there was no clear evidence that they were involved in this case, they didn't even think to do anything like that, which if they did do that would have made it pretty obvious at the very beginning in this case. In the months after the murders, the brothers were actually doing a lot of lavish spending with their parents' money. Like Lyle bought a Rolex watch, a Porsche, and a townhome in New Jersey, and um, like a lot of stuff he used their parents' money for. A cafe and a wing house restaurant apparently he also bought, and Eric hired a full-time tennis coach and competed in a series of tournaments in Israel. So, um, obviously that made police a little suspicious. They didn't seem to be super distraught or anything. They were just gladly spending their parents' money on whatever it is they wanted to do. It is believed that the brothers spent around $700,000 during the period between the murders and their arrest. And, of course, that arised a lot of suspicion from the brothers. I mean, they were going to London and the Caribbean and driving around L.A. in their deceased mother's Mercedes Benz. Like, super crazy stuff like that that you feel like if they were two sons that were really sad about their parents' murder, they would not be doing this kind of stuff. At least, I would think. And obviously, that created a lot of suspicion and made the police look into them as suspects. The police obviously had their suspicions about the brothers, and they even got some of Eric's friends to try to get him to confess. But he always told them no, but he finally did confess to his psychologist, who actually told his mistress, and his mistress later broke up with him, and then told the police, which is crazy. His psychologist should have went and told the police in the first place. But anyway, Lyle, the oldest brother, ended up being arrested on March 8th of 1990. And Eric turned himself in three days later. After he returned from Israel is when he turned himself in. So y'all see what I mean? They were just spending their parents' money on all these types of trips and all that kind of stuff. But anyway... The case actually ended up being quite complicated as far as if the tapes were going to be admissible in court. The tapes where Eric confessed to his psychologist, some of them ended up being admissible in court, meaning they could use them as evidence. And the only ones that weren't were the tapes where he discussed the murder. Originally, in August of 1990, a judge ruled that these tapes could be used in court but then that was appealed and the process took two whole years and finally the supreme court of california did rule again that the tapes could be used other than the tapes where he discussed the murder and after that decision a los angeles county grand jury discussed indictments in december of 1992 charging the two brothers with the murder of their parents. Now when it comes to the trial, 
It was actually broadcasted on court TV. And their trial did happen in 1993. Now, obviously, since it was broadcasted on court TV, there is, I'm sure you can find um, that footage somewhere. But, um, yeah, crazy stuff, to be honest. And, um, like we discussed earlier, they used the assault and um, sexual assault, all of that that they went through as kids in their court case and um they even said a few weeks before the night of the murders that the sexual abuse started up again and um they had several confrontations within the family and they claimed that their father had threatened to kill them if they did not keep the abuse a secret around this time they also said that their parents were hiding rifles in their bedroom which led to the two brothers buying their own shotguns for protection. And the last confrontation they had inside the home was in the den on August 20th of 1989. A few minutes before Kitty and Jose were killed, the brothers then stated that their father closed the den's door at that time, which was unusual. Paranoid and afraid that they would be killed, by their own parents that's when Lyle and Eric went inside and decided to load up the shotguns and um start firing at their parents so they didn't deny that they killed their parents but they went for the route of talking about the abuse and all of that that they endured as children and that's kind of what they discussed throughout the trial. So in this case, the jurors really didn't have to decide if they were actually the people who murdered them. That was already obvious. They just had to decide if their reasons for murdering them were justified, basically, um, is kind of what this case comes down to. And in the end, the brothers actually did end up getting life without the possibility of parole for both of them and it was a charge of first degree murder with conspiracy to commit murder um in case you're not familiar i'm sure you are if you're listening to this podcast but basically first degree just means that it was planned beforehand and second degree would mean it's not planned and normally manslaughter is killing someone by accident. It's different in every state as well. There's even some states that have third degree murder. Most states don't. But um, anyway, first degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder in this case. That is kind of it. I mean, they've had a lot of appeals since they've been in prison and um, tried to reduce their sentence or change it, whatever, but um, none of that has worked. It has stayed as life without the possibility of parole, which, um, I don't know. What do you guys think for this case? I mean, if all of the abuse can be proven, I don't necessarily think, I don't know, like, it's hard to describe what I'm thinking 
obviously, like, murder's never the answer, you know what I mean? And both of the sons were old enough. I know for sure Lyle was old enough to not live in the house, and I'm sure if Eric was still living in the house, he probably only had, like, a year or two, maybe even less than that, left until he was 18 and could legally move out, you know what I mean? So I feel like that would be, honestly, the best situation that could have been the best outcome for them to just leave. Or he could have moved out with his brother if his brother didn't live there. I don't know, but maybe they depended on their parents or something for financial stuff. It obviously seems like that when they were um, using all their money and all that kind of stuff in between the time of uh, their murder and being arrested. But honestly, a crazy case, you guys, not very often, at least that I've heard of, you hear of cases where the children end up murdering their parents. And it's honestly crazy to think that you could bring life into the world and be taken out of this world by that very life you brought into the world. But um, anyways, with that, I need to quit chatting and just share this week's crochet pattern with y'all. This week's crochet pattern feature is the Hanging Sloth Planter pattern by Hello Happy Crochet on Instagram. And this pattern can be found on Etsy, Ravelry, Ribbler, We Crochet, and HelloHappy.net. So you guys have a lot of options if you want to check out this pattern. And again, this is a really adorable one, like always, so I highly recommend you guys go check out this designer as well as this pattern. And like normal, most of my designers that I feature on this podcast have a lot more patterns than just the one. So I highly recommend checking them out in general. And um, if you guys do want to see a picture of this pattern as well as pictures from this case, my sources, all that kind of stuff, Instagram is the best place to go to for that. And I also started a TikTok for Crime and Crochet. If you guys are interested, that is at Crime and Crochet Podcast, where I'm also going to be sharing the crochet pattern each week in a TikTok and a little bit about the case. But of course, I'm going to leave it on a cliffhanger to make y'all listen to the episode. But um, anyways, if y'all do want to check that out, that is again, Crime and Crochet Podcast on TikTok. And um, again, this sloth plant hanging pattern is by hello happy crochet on instagram and um yeah that is it for this week so again before i wrap up this episode i just wanted to remind you guys that you can check out today's crochet pattern as well as my sources pictures of the people involved in this case and much much more over on my instagram at crime and crochet as all one word as well as if you want to help me out, the best way you can help me is leave a five-star review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on if you are enjoying the podcast. With that, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and I hope you will join me here next Saturday for the next episode of Crime and Crochet, and Make sure y'all are staying safe out there so you don't end up being one of these victims we talk about every week. Goodbye, y'all.